Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Chetan Butt. I'm director of the Center for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE, and I'd like to welcome you to this event, which is hosted by the Center, and it's focused on Gujarat, human rights violations, impunity, and the small topic of the Indian general elections. And I'd like to thank you very much for joining us this evening. Now, the themes of uh, this event are extremely important in a number of ways. They raise a number of different dimensions with regard to international human rights. In 2002, ferocious violence erupted in the Indian state of Gujarat, resulting in an estimated 1,500 deaths and the displacement of um, an estimated up to 200,000 Indian citizens, mostly Muslim. And the Gujarat violence followed an incident in which almost 60 Indian citizens, mostly Hindu, were horrifically burned to death aboard a train in the town of Godra in Gujarat. Now, numerous national and international human rights organizations, and I think I've counted something like 45 to 50 separate independent reports, have described the Gujarat violence in 2002 as a pogrom of extreme brutality and vicious sexual violence directed against Muslim minorities that was undertaken by political organizations and parties of the Hindu right with the connivance of the state of Gujarat. And in subsequent criminal proceedings and prosecutions, for example, Maya Kodnani, uh, who was formerly Minister for Children and Development uh, in the state and was a politician of the Partia Janta Party, the BJP, in the Gujarat State Legislative Assembly, as well as members of Hindu rights organizations, uh, were convicted of either orchestrating or partaking in the massacres. And numerous human rights organizations and international bodies have repeatedly alleged the involvement of the Gujarat State in the carnage, including the alleged complicity of its chief minister, the BJP politician Narendra Modi. So, for example, Human Rights Watch, in a very important report, described what it called state participation and complicity in the violence. Now, of course, as uh, I think everyone here knows, last year Narendra Modi was declared the prime ministerial candidate by the opposition BJP for the forthcoming 2014 Indian general election. It's going to be held in, uh, in April. Now, previously, he'd been denied a visa by the U.S. government because of concerns in the U.S. regarding freedom of religion that arose in the wake of the Gujarat violence. And he was certainly uh, discouraged from uh, coming and visiting the U.K. But both those situations have now changed. So, for example, um, I think a a U.S. ambassador met with Narendra Modi. The current coalition government has also uh, increased ties regarding trade and so forth with Gujarat State. Now, this important panel discussion explores a range of questions and themes related to impunity and human rights that remain following the Gujarat carnage. And contributors will discuss a range of themes, including the, the background and the context of communal violence in India, the events of 2002, and the current legal implications with regard to international human rights frameworks, but also current human rights legal cases uh, in which UK citizens were killed during the pogrom. 
and contributions will discuss uh, how media representations, and especially uh, Mr. Modi's formidable national and international PR machine, I don't know if you've seen the videos, the roving videos of him being projected in three dimensions in Indian villages, they're quite spectacular, have worked nevertheless to diminish the human rights issues that are at stake. And uh, contributors will also raise broader theoretical concerns about how liberal democracies uh, relate to, but can also allow and generate certain kinds of serious human rights violations. I'm therefore honoured and delighted to be able to introduce to you our distinguished panel who will be making contributions around different facets of the events and their current implications in the context of the Indian general elections and the rise of Narendra Modi. Suresh Grover is director of the Monitoring Group and he's been active in the civil rights field for over 30 years. I don't want to give away your age. Uh, but let's say over 30 years, so, uh, maybe a couple of decades, three decades. The Guardian newspaper described him as one of the 100 most influential people in the UK with regard to social policy and social change. And he's the leading exponent of family-led empowerment and justice campaigns in the UK. He led the campaigns to help families of Stephen Lawrence, Said Mubarak, and Victoria Klimbiai. All these cases led to published public judicial inquiries and consequent changes in legislation, policy and practice. Since the London bombings, he has worked with victim families of the horrific carnage, as well as individuals that have been affected by indiscriminate state-led policies in London, Midlands and the North. And Mr Grover is a recognised advisor on hate crimes and human rights for a range of public bodies uh, and NGOs in the UK and in other parts uh, of Europe. And he's currently writing his book on uh, race relations in the UK, which is due to be published next year. Carla Firstman joined Redress in 2001 as its legal director and became its director in 2005. She was called to the bar in British Columbia in Canada, where she practiced as a criminal law barrister. And she's also worked with the UN, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights on legal reform and capacity building in post-genocide Rwanda. And she's worked with Amnesty International's International Secretariat as a legal researcher on trials in Central Africa. And has worked as a legal advisor and executive legal advisor to uh, Bosnia's Commission for uh, Real Property Claims for Displaced Persons and Refugees. And she's published on a number of areas, including victim rights, the International Criminal Court, and the prohibition against torture. My colleague, Shakuntala Banerjee, is from the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE. And she's published extensively on young people, children, gender, ethnicity, and Hindi cinema. I call it Hindi cinema, not Bollywood. As well as on creativity and civic participation. And her current research addresses the intersection between religion, politics, media, and learning, and focuses on young people's interactions with media genres and technologies. And her work on youth civic engagement uh, is available in a series of reports on the website civicweb.eu. And uh, her, much of her work uh, will be explored further in a book co-authored with David Buckingham and available from MIT Press. And to my far left is Biju Matthew. Uh, he's Associate Professor of Business and American Studies at Rider University in New Jersey. 
He's a co-founder of the International Coalition Against Genocide, and his scholarship ties together global labor markets, migration, and the emergence of diasporic right-wing formations. He's written an amazingly wonderful book on uh, the taxi drivers' movement in New York City. It's called Taxi, I believe. Um, so please read it. It's a wonderful read. And uh, as a member of the Coalition Against Genocide, Dr. Matthew has followed the Gujarat carnage, global funding for uh, uh, funding trails of uh, Hindutva organizations abroad, and the politics of Hindutva for over 10 years. Now, the format for the event is that each speaker will give their presentations for uh, about 15 minutes. And after that, there'll be plenty of time for questions from the audience. Now, we do have to finish just before 8 o'clock, but there's a reception during which you can continue your discussions with panel members. And the reception, you're very welcome to join us for the reception. There'll be drinks and nibbles provided. This event is being audio recorded, and we hope to have a podcast of the lecture and the question and answer session online in a few days. And we also encourage you to comment on the event using Twitter. And the suggested hashtag for the event is LSE Gujarat. Can I also ask you to turn off uh, any phones and uh, electronic devices? Thank you very much. I'd like to invite uh, Rish Prabhu to begin his presentation, which is on the context of communism, the Gujarat riots, and the implications of some legal cases. Mr. Prabhu. Thank you, Chetan. Just a word about myself. Although I have been in this country since 1966, and I was born in East Africa, um, my parents were refugees during the partition from Pakistan. Uh, and they were obviously Hindu by religion. And a large section of my family in India, um, especially my parents' relatives, are all BJP members and active BJP members. Um, so I don't want to be accused of being anti-BJP because I have family members who are both BJP and anti-BJP. And I think the issue of partition is critical in how we discuss the discourse about the position of Muslims in India at the moment, although I'm not going to allude to it in my contribution. In February 2002, 12 years ago, this month, two British brothers, Sakil and Saeed Daud, went to India with their childhood friend called Muhammad Aswat and their 18-year-old nephew called Imran Daud. While returning from an excursion trip to fulfill their childhood dream to see the majesty of Taj Mahal, their joyous adventure turned into a nightmare. At the moment, at that moment, the carefree teenager Imran had no clue that the specter of death engulfing Gujarat had begun and that within an hour of him crossing the Gujarat border, he would lose his companions, all four of them, in appalling and brutal circumstances. At about 6 p.m. on the 28th of February, the four British tourists were traveling in a jeep with a local driver called Yusuf Pelagam on one of Gujarat's main highways. Crossing the border, within about 45 minutes, they could see smoke coming from buildings. 
only 200 yards away from the highway. They stopped and asked police officers whether it was safe for them to keep traveling on. The police said yes. They moved on, but the driver became anxious. He stopped for a while and then started driving slowly. Suddenly, they encountered a mob that had set up a roadblock on the highway. At first, Imran and his companions were asked to hand over a bottle of water. The bottle was taken from them, the water was thrown out, and petrol was put into that bottle. Then they were asked whether they were Muslims and where they were from. At first, some of the mob members asked them to remove their trousers to see whether they were circumcised. But some noticed an Arab inscription on their jeep and immediately set upon the driver, dragging him and started beating him. Imran and his relatives fled 200 yards away. They were cornered by a mob of about 20 people. Imran's last recollection is seeing his uncles pleading for their lives, taking their British passports out and showing the mob the British currency and saying they had no quarrel with the mob. He was stabbed in the leg, beaten on the head, and left for unconscious. When he woke up, a minute or so afterwards, he saw Muhammad Asad being set upon. Somehow he managed to drag Muhammad out of the area, about 20 yards away, at which point the police intervened. They put Imran on a carrier, and the motionless Muhammad Aswad with him. And Imran pleaded with them to save their uncles. They refused and said they'd come 10 minutes later. Asad was declared dead on arrival in the clinic. In the meantime, the driver had been beaten up to death by the mob, his body thrown into the jeep and both set alight. Imran Daud woke up next morning only to learn that his uncles were still missing. And the police, despite their promise, had made no effort to go back and search for them. Had the local police acted professionally, these murders could have been prevented. But the police could have alerted the tourists not to travel into the danger area when asked by the driver. The initial attacks on the jeep and the subsequent chase of the victims by the mob took place within eyeshot of the police, who were no more than 200 yards away. The investigation into the crime against Imran and his companion was deliberately negligent and designed to hide the real culprits. The police had failed to visit the scene of crime, secure any forensic evidence, interview any witnesses, or identify any perpetrators, never mind arrest them. Despite the fact that the initial police report was filed on the same day, the perpetrators were never interviewed and charged until April that year. Given the serious nature of the charges, bail was granted to the perpetrators without any objection from the public prosecutor. The latter, it turned out, was a well-known member of the Sangh Pravar. He was only relieved of his prosecution duties when he became a judge about a year later. Now, this is not an isolated case. 
We know from the Human Rights Watch exactly what was happening. And I quote Sumita Narula, the senior South Asia researcher on human rights, in her report in May 2002 said this, what happened in Gujarat was not a spontaneous uprising. It was carefully orchestrated attack against Muslims. The attacks were planned in advance and organized with extensive participation of the police and state government officials. The claim by Imran Dawood in Indian courts, in my view and others, show clear evidence of culpability against Narendra Modi and others. That evidence is extensive and can be summarized as follows. In total opposition to the values of equality enshrined in the Indian Constitution, the Sangh Parvar espoused a right-wing Hinduata ideology with the ultimate aim of creating a Hindu state in India. There is clear evidence to show that all the affiliates of the Sangh Parvar and its leader took active part in the anti-Muslim genocide of 2002 with the full support of the Chief Minister. The policies pursued by the BJP as soon as they assumed in power in Gujarat in 1998 reflected a systematic pattern of marginalization, exclusion, and targeting of minority communities, including the Muslim community in that state. For instance, in 1998, the State Department set up police cell for monitoring interreligious marriages. This was justified by the then Home Set Minister, Haran Pandya, for the state on the grounds that such marriages were not made out of free choice but were forced on Hindu women. This was coupled with the disbanding of the police cells set up to investigate atrocities and violence against women. From 1998 onwards, there was a striking policy of withdrawing Muslim police officers from field postings as far as possible. There was also an effort to sidestep the normal recruitment process by police, by appointing police sevaks who were cater of the Sangh Parvar. These sevaks were later drafted into police service, thereby subverting the recruitment procedure. The Gujarat government also used the Home Guard Force as a means to induct the VHP and Bajrang Dal cater into law enforcement machinery to ensure its compliance and obedience to the Sangh Parvar thereby subverting the rule of law and all constitutional norms. Let's look at the chronology of the violence. On 15th of January 2002, the VHP announced mass mobilization in Gujarat for its IODA agitation to demolish the Babri Masjid. This resulted in the movement of thousands of Kerasevaks from Gujarat to Ayodhya. On the 7th of February, the State Intelligence Bureau alerted all superintendents and commissioners of police in the state about a movement of Kerasevaks by train on the 22nd of February to Ayodhya. The State Intelligence Service has also repeatedly alerted the Uttar Pradesh government, police authorities, and number of Kerasevaks who had left the state for Ayodhya by train. Thus, if necessary, Preventative action could have been taken against any incidents of violence when the Kasevaks returned from Ayodhya. When the Ahmedabad Sabarmati Express started its journey from Ayodhya, it was carrying nearly 2,000 passengers on board, almost double the capacity of 1,100 people. Nearly 1,700 of these were Kasevaks. 
The media and the press have reported instances of violence occurring in the UP due to clashes between the Kasevaks and the local populations at different stations. This in itself should have been a cause of concern and ought to have alerted the state intelligence to take preventative measures, but no such measures were considered or implemented. On the 27th of February 2002, at about 8 a.m., the S6 coach of the express was burned down, resulting in the tragic death of 58 people, mostly Hindus, at the Gozra station. The cause of the burning of the coach and the subsequent deaths is still to be judicially ascertained. However, there was no evidence that the burning of the carriage was premeditated. In fact, the local district collector of Godra, Jayanti Ravi, issued a statement which was broadcast repeatedly for 11 hours from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. that day to the effect that the Godra fire was not premeditated and probably an accident. In reality, despite the social media reportage of the incident, Gujarat was relatively peaceful until the evening of 27th of February 2002. Narendra Modi and some of his cabinet members arrived at Godra around 2 p.m. on that day. Against the advice of the local administration, Modi took a decision to transport the charred bodies of those passengers to Ahmedabad. His initial plan was not to remove the bodies from the plane, but to take the train with their bodies to the capital. However, to gain maximum publicity and media coverage, he and his colleagues decided to take the bodies in an open motor cavalcade to Ahmedabad. At about 7.30 p.m. that day, without any evidence to back it, Modi made a public statement in which he announced that the ICI, the Pakistan Intelligence Service, were responsible and behind the Godra incident. He described Godra as, I quote, a pre-planned violent act of terrorism. On the same day, in an interview, Praveen Togadia, International General Secretary of the VHP, stated, this has never happened in the history of independent India. Hindu society will avenge the Godra killings. Muslims shouldn't accept the fact that Hindus are not wearing bangles. We will respond vigorously to all such incidents. The next day, Modi said on Doodarshan, the Indian state television, Gujarat shall not tolerate any such incident. The culprits would get full punishment for their sins. Not only this, we will set an example that nobody, not even in his dreams, thinks of committing a heinous crime like this. The statements became the basis of a program of genocidal intent against all Muslims in Gujarat. In order to facilitate the spreading of violence from Godra to the rest of Gujarat and to paralyze the state machinery, the VHP called for statewide bund. Despite the fact that the courts have held bunds to be illegal, Modi, in total defiance of his constitutional and legal duties, announced and promoted a Gujarat statewide ban the next day. He would have known and foreseen that such action would lead to a breakdown of the state machinery and to failure to maintain the rule of law. Indeed, all the reliable evidence suggests that Modi went further by calling two separate meetings about the official response, the first with senior police officers 
and the second with senior ministers. In both, he allegedly gave specific instructions that resulted in the complete absence of police action and intervention against mobs unleashing wanton violence against Muslim community on the 28th of February 2002. Indeed, central police control rooms were taken over by at least two cabinet members, Ashok Bhatt and Jadeja, in direct violation of normal procedure. As a consequence, repeated pleas for help were ignored and turned down by the police. The gross political interference was also used to monitor the response of police officers and to ensure the release of mob leaders and known supporters of the Sangh Parivar. Although the army was called in, it was deliberately not deployed for the first 72 hours, crucial hours when the violence in the program against Muslims was at its height. Had the army been deployed properly, the threat of violence, the threat of violence would have subsided. I've been asked to cut short, so I'm going to move into some of the main issues in terms of the evidence that existed. The carnage resulted in large-scale deaths and grievous injury to the Muslim community. Gruesome and brutal rapes against Muslim women were widespread. Violence against women and children was deployed in systematic and widespread fashion. Women's bodies were made the grounds on which the to symbolize the subjugation of the entire Muslim population. In addition, there was widespread destruction of their property, decimation of places of worship and cultural symbols. It's estimated that across Gujarat, 1,100 Muslim-owned hotels and homes of not less than 100,000 families, over 15,000 small and big establishments, around 3,000 handcarts, 5,000 vehicles were badly damaged and destroyed. And the end violence took and led to the murder of 2,000 Muslim people. There are those who now claim that the Supreme Court has absolved Modi of any blame for the riots. Let's clarify this. The case against Modi has never been argued before the Supreme Court of India. At present, an appeal to continue with the prosecution prosecution against Modi is being lodged in the Gujarat Hard Court for his role in the riots of 2002. A special investigative team was appointed by the Supreme Court to look into the question of whether a criminal case could be made out against (coughs) Modi in 2009. After reviewing its initial evidence, the Supreme Court appointed an amicus curiae to look into SIT's operation. The amicus and SIT were both mere advisors to the Supreme Court, have made opposing recommendations based on the same evidence. The SIT suggested that there was insufficient evidence to proceed with a criminal case against Modi, whereas the amicus curiae has suggested that there's a prima facie grounds for proceeding to the criminal case against Modi. These are the bare bare facts. I don't want to go into the detail, but there is a report done by a number of journalists, including Manoj Mitta, which examines in detail the evidence collected by by SIT and how it should be uh, dealt with. To be a future prime minister, Modi desperately requires a new international image. To this end, he has has engaged the services of a global public relations industry, 
Together with multinationals and UK government, they've decided to break ranks with the international community's boycott of Modi, which lasted almost over two year, 12, 12 years. And this, in our view, can lead to the rehabilitation, endorsement and whitewashing of Modi's image. This despite the fact that there are still cases ongoing against Modi, and only recently Maya Kudnani, a senior minister in Modi's cabinet, was sentenced to 28 years for her role in the massacre at Naroda Patia during the 2002 genocide. She was described by the judge as the kingpin in incidents whose brutality is reflected in the murder of an infant who was 20 days old. The Daud family's campaign has been patient but determined, and it's a struggle for justice, which stands in sharp contrast to the UK's government's opportunist embrace of Narendra Modi. No matter, no matter what happens in the coming months in relation to the elections, their struggle will continue. We in the anti-racist movement, feminist movement, and the human rights movement have confronted bigger mountains than Modi before, and history tells us that the, our persistence will pay off. In the end, there will be no hiding place for people like Modi, and we shall overcome. Thank you. Thank you, Suresh, uh, very much for that presentation. And um, I'd like to invite Carla Firstman uh, to give the second talk, which will be uh, focusing on the international legal and human rights context. Thank you very much. I will uh, speak from here, if that's fine. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my disclaimer is that I'm not an India scholar. I'm not a political analyst. I'm a lawyer. I'm a human rights activist and I work in the area of international criminal law. So my comments will be coming from that perspective. I won't comment on the evidence, the strength of the evidence. I think the other speakers are, are much better placed than I. Um, suffice it to say that domestically, as has already been alluded to, there have been a range of processes at the domestic level which have looked to uh, some degree, we can debate what extent that degree is, into, um, into some of the issues, um, uh, uh, some of the violations, but Modi has been rather untouched. Internationally, um, there has also been a number of processes, and I'll look into that a little bit more. Um, in particular, there has been, in the United Kingdom, a request for an arrest warrant of Modi in 2003. That uh, didn't succeed. Um, on uh, the face of it, it had to do with an insufficiency of evidence. But in my, uh, given my, my knowledge of uh, some of the, uh, the legal issues, I suspect it has something to do with the UK's interpretation of command responsibility, which is rather limited um, when compared to international law. Um, several travel bans have been put in place, which have been lifted or wavering. One can debate where we are with some of that. Um, on the basis that uh, governments are now very keen to smooth relations in case Modi is indeed elected. 
uh, is quite interesting in that respect, um, given that the travel bans were put in place for one purpose, which was in response to the mass violations, but somehow they are now being removed for very different reasons, economic reasons, which um, we, we need to consider uh, a little bit further. So I'll touch on a few issues. The first one uh, I would like to touch on has to do with the local accountability process and consider what the extraterritorial effect of the local accountability process is or might be. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, If Modi was investigated, prosecuted with a a verdict of not guilty, hounded down by by Indian courts, which we know it didn't go to that effect, would courts in other countries have to follow this verdict? If something less than a full investigation and prosecution happened, what weight would be given to that domestic process internationally? And this is quite a critical question in light of the, uh, the ongoing allegations and the fact that we're talking about potentially genocide, certainly crimes against humanity, uh, war crimes in an internal armed conflict, torture, rape, sexual violence, a whole range of crimes which give rise to an international obligation to investigate and prosecute. So if a court in another country has to consider allegations against Modi, one of the questions it will have to consider is, well, are these allegations ones that have already been looked at? Um, There's a basic principle in criminal law that if you're tried for a crime once, you can't be tried for it again. But I think it's important to note, firstly, that has, has already been said, there has been no trial. Um, the double jeopardy rule only applies to prevent an investigation and prosecution for the same conduct and the same offense. So even if there was a prosecution for something, it doesn't prevent prosecution for other or wider offenses. Also, um, the double jeopardy rule doesn't apply to disciplinary hearings or administrative investigations. So these kinds of investigations, if they indeed have taken place, don't prevent a criminal investigation. But it's also been increasingly recognized that the rule shouldn't be used to cement impunity. So if there were sham investigations or prosecutions... So, for instance, investigations or prosecutions that were not independent or not impartial or where there was no real intent to see justice done, this wouldn't be enough to prevent a further investigation or prosecution. This is somehow similar to the test that's used by the International Criminal Court to determine whether it has jurisdiction to investigate or prosecute certain crimes its jurisdiction is triggered if the states where the crime took place is unwilling or unable to proceed with an investigation or prosecution. So, for instance, the Sudan government has argued unsuccessfully that it was already investigating certain crimes locally, so the International Criminal Court shouldn't have jurisdiction. Libya also um, made these kinds of arguments more successfully in relation to some of the cases before the International Criminal Court. 
If a domestic process recognizes an amnesty that violates international law or uses other rules like immunities which are not recognized in all circumstances, these barriers to justice will not prevent another court from looking into the matter. So the matter is by no means closed. Second issue I want to raise briefly is the issue of travel bans. The 2002 violence led to a de facto travel ban imposed on Modi in a number of countries, including the UK, certainly the United States, the European Union as well had made motions in that direction. Travel bans are part of a much wider set of restrictive measures that can be imposed to target governments or non-state entities and also individuals. Um, Other types of restrictive measures that we can think of might be arms embargoes, uh, trade restrictions, financial restrictions, um, and also visa, visa bans in addition to general travel bans. Travel bans can, I would say, be an easy diplomatic approach. In general, states have control over who they can let in So banning someone or denying someone entry is a matter which is within their prerogative. Um, Just today, um, there have been discussions at the uh, European Union about potential travel bans for the authors of the violence in Ukraine. And most major conflict zones in countries with repressive regimes have experienced some form of sanctions. We can think of Mugabe uh, in Zimbabwe, Syria, Libya. Depending on the country or body issuing the sanctions, there can be a process for the individual concerned, so the person who's subject to the ban, who is prevented from traveling, to appeal their designation. But one question that I have, which isn't really answered, do victims have the opportunity to complain about the decision to remove someone from a list. So when a travel ban is removed, what access do victims have to that process? It's not really clear. Questions in this respect, which would be relevant, if a state or international body has put in place a travel ban for a particular reason, Must this reason be lifted, be no longer present for the ban to be removed? Um, So, for instance, in the Modi case, the ban was put in place because of the lack of accountability for the wide-scale violence in 2002. That issue still remains, but the ban has been removed. Is that an area for judicial review? It would seem that this pressure stems from economic reasons as opposed to legal or accountability progress. So this is an open question. But if Modi became prime minister, the question will become somewhat moot. Um, And this is for a number of reasons. For instance, the United States would would have to, as a matter of international obligation, have to give him access to the United Nations in New York by way of international treaty, just as it had to do, for instance, for President al-Bashir, who was scheduled to go to New York last year to attend a General Assembly uh, meeting. 
And just as it had done previously for Gaddafi, for Ahmadinejad, for Fidel, Fidel Castro. So in the end, al-Bashir didn't travel to the United States, so we wouldn't have had the opportunity to test how um, his international arrest warrant, on the one hand, would impact on the travel restrictions on the other. Um, But it's an interesting question. The Netherlands recently had to give access to uh, Ruto, the deputy president of Kenya, who's indicted by the International Criminal Court, who wished to, in his role as government official, address the, uh, the International Criminal Court Assembly of States parties meetings. So we can imagine a very huge disconnect should Modi become uh, prime minister of the entire international community by obligation having to accord him certain, certain rights by virtue of international relations when these wider issues of, account- of accountability have not been dealt with. I'd like to turn briefly to the issue of foreign prosecutions. It's important to note, uh, I mentioned already, that in 2003, there was, an, uh, there was an arrest warrant which uh, was attempted in the United Kingdom, which failed. But what is important is that there's no statute of limitations for the co- types of crimes which we're talking about. Um, so the prospect for justice doesn't end. It doesn't go away. Um, Immunities uh, are obviously an important issue for consideration in relation to Mr. Modi, should he become prime minister, but also already. Um, At present, the law is that if he is the head of state, he cannot be prosecuted by a foreign state in in another country. Um, He's immune from prosecution in his person. Um, After he leaves office, that type of immunity no longer exists, and he would be capable of being prosecuted. A question uh, relates to the fact of his current uh, role as uh, the the senior minister in Gujarat, um, the extent to which that function Um, gives him personal immunity even now. I would say it would be a hard case to answer, Um, and it's unlikely that he would have that kind of immunity now. As soon as he would leave office, he'd lose his personal immunity for acts which preceded his presidency, as well as for any uh, his, his, uh, his, his time as prime minister, as well as for any acts during that time. The only immunity that would remain is functional immunity tied to official acts. And as per the Pinochet decision, um, official acts that constitute torture or other serious international law violations cannot benefit from functional immunity. So in a way, criminal proceedings could certainly be on the table. Another uh, issue which I want to briefly raise has to do with diplomatic protection. And this, um, this stems in part from Suresh's comments about the British nationals who um, were impacted um, by the violence in 2002. What role should foreign governments have 
um, whose nationals were killed or tortured or harmed in the context of the violations. If it can be shown that there is no domestic remedy, um, these states should take up the cases of their nationals. And there's increasing jurisprudence in this area which says that states don't have an absolute discretion in this regard. They must take up, they must consider requests to act for, uh, for them to take up the cases of their nationals in good conscience and with full uh, respect to the issues in front of them. But the biggest damage um, with all these unanswered questions and the continued impunity, of course, is credibility. India, as the biggest democracy with a hugely diverse population, um, with a prime minister, if he would be elected, with the stain of being associated with ethnic violence on huge proportions. This is not the way to start a new government. It's important for governments, all governments, to stress the importance of dealing with all of the remaining unanswered questions and with the legacy of impunity to avoid um, the stain that this will have globally on international relations. It'll impact on India's role globally if these issues aren't dealt with fully and effectively. Thank you. Thank you, Carla, very much indeed for an uh, excellent discussion of the legal context, which I think would have been uh, would have resonated with uh, some of our MSc human rights students um, who have been looking at issues of command responsibility and, and international law. So thank you very much for that. Um, can I move on quickly to uh, Dr. Banerjee, who will give her presentation on the media representations of Mr. Modi and how they link to questions of accountability. And her talk is also going to involve showing some uh, clips and uh, videos. Thank you, Shaka. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chetan, and to the panel for the very interesting discussion. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, going to, I'm here to give you a very different perspective. And in a way, I think it's been, although it's harrowing to hear details of terrible things that happen in other places, it's almost been a distance because we didn't necessarily do those things, nor necessarily are we all victims of those things in a direct manner. But I'm actually going to move the discussion into a more complicated, perhaps more, more problematic terrain by asking when the relationship between citizens and media mean that you know and you see terrible things happening, does that make you and me, does that make us, the audience, responsible in some way for what's going on? And in what way does remaining passive impact on your sense of citizenship, either in the global field or in the national field? So what does the media mean for us as citizens? We hear as a commonplace that it's better to be an active citizen than a passive citizen. And one of the things that I've studied over the years is the question of how much the media can impact on our citizenship. How much can the media help us to be more and more active citizens? Let's say, let's take Tunisia and Twitter. It's almost that it goes without saying that it's wonderful to be a tweeter. Actually, we need to question some of these big assumptions about active citizenship. If you happen to know that what was happening on Twitter was that the addresses of people from one ethnic group were being published and that mobs were landing up on their doorstep and killing them, would it be good to be an active tweeter? And so I'm going to engage with questions about the responsibility and role of the media, but not just the media, but also the audience in issues of impunity, genocide, ethnic violence, etc. 
And hopefully I can put this into some form of context. I know that my colleague Biju will do more of a contextualizing after I finish speaking, but I really need, and I feel that we really need, to take a few steps back, perhaps even a few steps back further than Gujarat 2002. We need to think about what we as a society, both here in Britain as the South Asian community here in Britain, but also as a society in India, had become or were becoming and in order to understand why it could be in 2014 that we might be about to elect a prime minister who is accused of, if not entirely guilty, of a certain form of ethnic cleansing. So the social context... And this is something that comes from extensive research. I've named a few researchers here, but actually there are hundreds of people writing and working on this, not just in the LSE, but in other institutions all around the world, notably in India. An aggressive patriarchal family violence structure which actually excludes the voices of children and young people, which excludes the voices of many, many women, which excludes people from public spaces where people from certain castes and certain classes do not feel welcome, where they are chased away. So we have allowed this as a society to come to place. All you have to do is walk into one of the big malls in a city like Delhi, and you have a sense of the extremes of wealth and poverty that have been normalized over the last few decades. Second, there's a normalization of violence. I hear often a complaint that Hindi cinema is too violent. What about the complaint that the society outside the Hindi cinema is too violent? It's okay for the man to give his wife a few slaps. If she said something wrong, she didn't get his dinner ready on time. It's okay for the mum to give the child a few slaps if they didn't do their homework and didn't do their chores. And from that, we move to a much more sinister violence against young maids working in people's houses. It's perfectly okay. I've walked along the streets in Bombay and watched policemen simply randomly slapping men who form in crowds. It's okay for the police just to slap a few guys, sort it out, you know, because they're like our dads, these police. And so we have these metaphors of he's like my dad, so it's okay for for him to punch me or pinch me or push me. Okay, the second thing that I've studied over the years is sexual violence against women. You know, women walk down the street in Delhi, and I can tell you in a five-minute period walking down the street, you will have your ass pinched or your breasts pinched. And if you think that this is a wonderful religious place, which is so spiritual, where you can go and have a nice time, just take that walk first before you go to the mosque or the temple. And then you'll have a sense of the context in which this violence is normalized. It's absolutely every day. Second, third, the interpenetration of politics and religion in a really big way. And this has exploded in the last 20 years. It's taken the place, it's taken the space of bureaucracy. It's the implication of people in high up places with bureaucratic jobs, with political jobs, with jobs in the judiciary. The interpenetration of high right-wing Hindutva members in positions of power. Fourth, we have a huge propaganda machine fueled by a now liberal and open media which allows pretty much anyone to talk. And of course, in the West, everyone is all for investment. We might even lift the cap on 26% direct foreign investment, and we'll have more and more stations broadcasting more and more of the same stuff. Finally, the vicious gap between rich and poor, which actually means that you have a massive disenfranchised population who are not on Twitter, who are not on Facebook, and whose views are very, very rarely reflected in these urban middle-class debates. 
And this is quite a frightening thing because you can say that the country is for so-and-so without the country actually even knowing that you are saying that thing. You can say on Twitter that this person is the prime minister-elect and 90% of the electorate hasn't got access to that information. Finally, you have this corruption at every level where people can buy themselves out of pretty much any situation. I'll use one example. You have the film star Salman Khan. Many of you may have heard of him. Um, He runs over a family of pavement dwellers. He gets no prosecution for that. He's basically bought himself out of a situation. He punches his girlfriend. It's catalogued. She's another famous film star. Nothing happens to him for that. He shoots a deer in a park, and he's up to get five years imprisonment for that. Now, that kind of legal system leads people to a belief that the whole system is corrupt. So individual instances of corruption impact on people's belief in democracy, people's belief in fairness, people's belief in the parliament. And then you have mass mobilizations with absolutely no political background, which end up going nowhere, because they don't have an idea of what the alternative would be. Everybody is implicated. Democracy is weakened by this. And then filling that vacuum of suspicion, you have the lure of power. A powerful individual steps into the breach. He's just one person. And there is this sense that you are seduced by this. The thing that I have studied over the over the past decades has been the changing media context in India in relation to the social context. So with a political context where people are more and more skeptical of parliament, of democracy, you have a media which is massively deregulated. There there is virtually no body which can do anything to prevent the media from publishing anything about you. If one of you was raped or molested on a street in India and a journalist happened to catch that on camera, it would be on the nine o'clock news in full Technicolor and your name would be there. Who would you go to? Do you even know who you would go to to protest against that? So you've got a lack of accountability in the media building up behind this. You've got media owned by big businesses, big businesses owned by politicians, politicians who are also corporate, politicians who are also actors. So you've got a nexus between a whole range of very, very powerful actors in India. You've got competitive and individualistic journalism taking root rather than collegial and investigative journalism. So it's for everyone. It's the rush to the next story. I talk to journalism students in India on a regular basis, and more and more the space for collegial, careful, checked, fact-checked, independent journalism is shrinking and shrinking by the day as the Indian media scene explodes. So you may well have 1,500 channels, but you have one story. And everybody knows the danger of a single story. Paid news, where a politician or a politician's son or a politician's secretary can walk in to a media house, sit down with the editor and say, right, you're for my party. This is what you can get from me for it. And this actually, again, um, it has a derogatory effect on the whole of the political system. So people become more and more suspicious of journalists and politicians. You've got, in both entertainment media and news media, a soundbite culture. So as soon as you can say the three words or the five-word phrase, it's picked up and it's move, it moves the whole nation. The notion that the nation moves together is very moving somehow to the journalists. There's a lack of ethical frameworks for this. There's a lack of ethical frameworks. And then on top of that, there's a very silent and insidious censorship or an intimidation both online and offline. 
I guess people are laughing at the fact that you've got a whole series of things going on which are actually quite, which sound quite bleak. So if media define public interest, and this is the media that we have, this is what we have to work with, what are the consequences for democracy? Well, veteran rural affairs journalist P. Sainat says, Lakme Fashion Week in Mumbai was covered by 612 accredited journalists, but there were only half a dozen journalists to cover the farmers' suicides in Badharba. Farmers' suicides in India are one of the hugest issues which could be facing the country. People in dire poverty shooting themselves because they simply cannot pay off the debts on their land or their farms. And of course, fashion is far, far more interesting. Um, let's take a look at the way in which all of this context, the social context, the political and the media context, then have somehow joined forces to form a perfect storm from the center of which Modi has risen like a god. So let's look at the motifs of the pro-Modi campaign. Well, change. They're all very simple. They're all very soundbitey, and they all borrow from Obama. It's very interesting. <laughs> Politicians from other parties are corrupt and pseudo-secular. We need to try something new, anything new. Modi gives us hope. Strength. The Congress party is led by an inexperienced young man from a wealthy family. We don't like him. Modi shows strength. He doesn't flinch when something tough has to be done. Okay. Hindu nation. At a time when it's politically correct to call oneself secular, Modi proudly stands up and calls himself a Hindu nationalist. And he has got the credentials to prove it. He's done his 20 years sitting at the feet of the RSS. The past. We need to remember things that we think happened over 600 years ago. Now, this is an absolute motif of the Hindu campaign, the Hindutva campaign, that we need to think about temples that were burnt 600 years ago. We need to think about the rewriting of stories which were written in 14, 14, 1400 years ago, but we must forget what happened 12 years ago. We must forget in order to move forward as a nation because we absolutely have to move forward. The Hindu right has been absolutely wonderful at embracing new media. Absolutely hats off to them. The nobo nobody on the other side can compete. Modi supporters are absolutely ubiquitous on Twitter and Facebook and in the comment sections of blogs and newspapers. Literally everywhere you go, and I spend, believe me, as a media lecturer, a lot of my time in forums and online, you get the same rhetoric, and it's very, very consistent. My leader, right or wrong, he stands for development, and in response to pretty much anything anyone else says, they go, you must be shagging someone in the Congress, because otherwise you wouldn't be saying that. Okay, so there's a story building up here. The enemies of Modi are basically somehow or the other related to the Congress, and Modi has brand India behind him. He's got money, he's endorsed by the super rich, he's obviously and evidently going to be brilliant for business. So here he is embracing one of the richest men in India. He has vibrant Gujarat. Everything's going really, really well. He's on the cover of Time magazine. So the international media is definitely not off the hook here. He means business, they say. And business means let's revoke the ban on his travel because, of course, business is more important than human life itself. Of course, despite the exhaustive and wasted work done in academia where all these pseudo-secular liberal intellectuals are wasting their time pouring over the facts, writing things about how sorry actually the development narrative isn't as good as it seems. There are people living in terrible poverty amidst the apparent prosperity or people doing careful, thought-out ethnographic research in Gujarat over the time of the riots, people who were there, who saw, who heard, who documented. This is absolutely irrelevant in this story. 
You have another form, which is taken from the U.S. again, this presidentialization of the campaign, which makes the leader far, far above the party. So you have a constant spectacle, and I want to show you um, that if you too wish to connect with Modi, you may do so in any of many, many forms. You can connect with him in any of the many ways which technology, that wonderful technology which we're all talking about, how much it makes us active citizens, you can connect with him in any of those ways. Of course, behind the scenes, there's a rather more bleak context. As entertaining as this is, we we need to... (laughs) There's a rather bleaker context. And it's a context in which anyone, particularly critical, so if you're just a common person who's critical, you probably have... 10, 15 shitty comments for every one comment you make against him. If you're a journalist who's critical, you'll probably lose your 20-year-long slot hosting a program. And this sort of censorship is actually a form of gagging of the media. So actually, I end the talk by just coming back to where I started. This is a marriage made in heaven. The modern media context in India, the mediascape and Modi's campaign dovetail in ways which are fearsome, absolutely fearsome. Deregulation, subsidies and monopolies, subsidies for capital and circumvention of the due process, sensationalism and sentiment, which is absolutely loved and apparently lapped up by the Indian public, sensationalism, sentiment and threat. Sound bites, binary oppositions, sound bites, us versus them binary, so everyone who's against me is obviously a Congress spy. Spectacle and ratings, the media thrives on this even when it's spectacle of somebody being shot. Spectacular rallies, stunts and populism. A lack of ethics, a lack of discrimination, a lack of accountability, trolling, which takes place in all new media, and surveillance in terms of Modi's campaign. Finally, a proliferation of online content, which some people would say was a good thing, and a massive online PR machine and fans, which should be a warning to any of us who want to eulogize new media as a tool of democracy. 
Finally, I think we need to look forward with a little bit of caution to what is coming in the next 10 years. Democracy is being dismantled in front of our eyes. And if the media is the fourth pillar of a democracy, we have allowed this to happen. We have allowed this to happen with plenty of warning. There are a sing- the, the single narrative wasn't uncontested. And it is now. So we need to invent new metaphors quickly. We need to have new frameworks that we put out there to contest this narrative. We need to think beyond the strong man and the good business voice. And we need to think about the way in which we can reassemble and re-strengthen something that India has always had, a very strong grassroots democratic culture, which was non-violent at a time when the media wasn't there either on Twitter or in terms of television. So, over to you. Thank you. Shaku, th- thank you very much indeed for an excellent and uh, very entertaining presentation. Um, I didn't mean to rush you, but I would like to keep some time for audience questions as well. So, uh, can I introduce our final speaker, Dr. Biju Matthew, who will be talking about the context in which Modi has arisen. So, why Narendra Modi now? What are the dynamics of Indian liberal democracy and other social forces that have led to this moment uh, in Indian history? Thank you, Biju. Thank you, Chetan, and thanks to all of my co-panelists. Uh, I mean, it's a very, very difficult and, uh, you know, complex story that all of you have told, and uh, what I want to do is kind of outline some of the broader parameters uh, around which this is happening. Um, And Shakuntala, thank you for that absolutely brilliant uh, kind of uh, picture you painted of what is happening from within the structure of media. The Modi bots are everywhere, and... uh, uh, sometimes when you are when you experience Modi bots in the kind of amazing proliferation of the same voice all over again through social media, one feels that uh, uh, you know one can actually trace that to the kind of you know the kind the kind of structures that are supporting Modi in this advance uh, towards quote unquote supposed prime ministership. So three vectors, I would argue. Uh, three trajectories intersecting produce this moment where Modi is uh, uh, being featured as a potential prime ministerial candidate. And I just want to kind of highlight that in the context of the kind of social media Modi botism that uh, Shagundala talked about, even though it seems, the hype seems to be so huge, Every single time some, something like this has happened, uh, very often the Indian electorate has, all, has turned this on its head. So uh, the urban social media kind of Modi bot phenomena is something that we can all look at, but we also need to be very clear that a lot of people will watch that and probably might do something exactly in the opposite direction. And that's, that's partially not so much the hope, but a question of what, what the social dynamics the, the, that might unfold. So, three trajectories or three vectors that produce this Modi moment is important to note. To start the first of those stories is to go to looking back again at the media and what the, what the last four years or three years of Congress rule has been produced as in the popular press and 
you know, way before Modi's candidacy was announced, how the Indian media had begun to position the current, uh, current UPA government and what it has achieved or not achieved. The favorite phrase, the phrase that began to kind of uh, lock down and become the single most important descriptor for the UPA government was the word policy paralysis. That this is a government faced with policy paralysis. And in many ways one can ask the question, is this, I mean, it is very possible that the UPA government was indeed a, a government of policy paralysis, that it had not been able to take any real serious new initiatives either in the domain of social policy or in the domain of economy and business. In any, in, in any and several domains, it is very possible that a, that a government is actually undergoing something called policy paralysis. But the interesting part is that if you compare the number of new legislations brought into place in the six years of the BJP NDA rule and compare it to the 10 years of UPA rule, then the UPA government has actually enacted more things, has produced more legislation, has set things into motion more often than the previous government had. And yet, there is an accusation of policy paralysis. Many of those acts that the uh, UPA government brought into place, I'm in firm disagreement with. So when I say that, the, that, this, that this accusation that there is policy paralysis is something that we can put a question mark over, it's not because I'm in support of any, any number of the legislations that were brought into place, but because simply because they have actually come into place, how much ever many people may disagree with it. So the question is, why this discourse of policy paralysis, which is what Modi dovetails into? In many ways, the situation in India is that the social contradictions on the ground have been, for the last 20 years, ever since the neoliberal economic reform started in 1991, the social contradictions have been multiplying by the year. There is a serious attack on land in terms of people with small land holdings, etc., etc. There's a serious attack on land and other resources. There's an enormous amount of resource grabbing that's going on all across the country. And in that context, social movements and mobilizations on the ground have increased quite dramatically. In through the period when there was an economic boom going on, that is through the first UPA tenure. Some of this could be eliminated through a whole bunch of what I call the parallel track of welfare policies, right? The NREGA, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, the Forest Rights Act, all of those different kinds of uh, acts. But as the economy began to slow down post the global crisis in 2008, the social contradictions on the ground and the critical mobilizations that are going on did begin to put all sorts of barriers in the Indian economy in terms of what you could do. The rip and run economy that had come into place was being challenged quite significantly. It's my argument, therefore, that part of what is happening, this whole policy paralysis discourse, Modi being projected as the champion of, of development and business, is in some part coming because a significant segment of the Indian business elite has made a decision that, the, that even a pro-neoliberal government like the UPA, like the Congress Party-led government, is not enough. 
that the pace of the rip and run economy is being slowed down and therefore what is required is somebody who has who has let's say the potential for a more authoritarian kind of an implementation of a neoliberal agenda i think it's a it's a very clear signal that has come from the business elite that we need somebody like modi a strong man like modi who has pushed back social movements social movements are at their weakest in a state like gujarat so if there is one example i mean modi is projected as the big development chief minister the big business chief minister it's but statistics don't bear that out necessarily fully gujarat is got very very middle of the rung statistics on most social indicators things like child malnutrition is pretty high for instance in a in a, in, a, in gujarat how would a state that is supposedly economically such a vibrant state have such high degrees of child mal- malnutrition well if you want to hear modi's answer to that i'll tell you later right but the point is that even on, even on investment this famous you know the vibrant gujarat uh, investment melas the investment fairs you know if you plot the amount of investment that was promised and the amount of investment that was realized it's a fascinating downward curve from 2003 onwards 2003 2000 it's it's every two year mela so 2003 all the way to 2011 if you look at it it's a fascinating downward curve that is lot of investment is promised but very little of it is realized right so if you look at the investments promised it's an upward curve if you look at the amount of percentage realized it's a downward curve right so in spite of the actual statistics of him as a developmental chief minister in spite of the actual statistics of him as a pro business uh, chief minister not actually holding why is it and how is it that he is being projected as such if we are to understand the structure of media what i mean the how, how the media especially the electronic media is structured in terms of which business houses own which part of it then part of what's happening or part of what i think is very clearly happening is that modi is being promoted as such not so much because of the his, his actual achievements in the ground of positive production of better development or positive production of a more interesting business environment but much more because he's managed to crush opposition and managed to crush social movements and the landscape of gujarat is probably the best example for that and in that sense that the, that vector emerges out of a particular business elite wanting that kind of an environment to be the one that's prevalent all across india that is one vector the second vector is a vector that has worried and worried the rss the sang parivar for a really really long time and this one is the vector around caste the hindutva movement is identified with brahmanic hinduism vedic vedic and brahmanic hinduism and in that context the second vector that has not yet been fully played out but i anticipate might get played out in the next two months before the elections come in is the vector around modi being projected as an obc candidate right this is a, this is a critical one because the rss if you look at the election statistics if you look at the bjp's election statistics they have hit a wall caste 
and caste-based mobilizations, not necessarily progressive caste-based mobilizations, but caste-based mobilizations of various varieties have become in one sense or another one of the bulwarks against the spread of Hindutva. Especially if you look at the regional party logic and how that breaks down, caste is one of the bulwarks that has emerged against Hindutva. And in that context, a necessary kind of uh, thinking that has emerged within the RSS is whether Modi can be positioned as an OBC candidate. There's a very, very, very serious, uh, thoughtful effort that's going on inside the Sangh Parivar to see how they can break some of these barriers. And that's very typically Sangh. Right? If you look at what the Sangh did back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, when they were attempting to create the first round of electorate in the post-Gandhi assassination moment, they actually went to the Dangs, the, 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 the tribal areas, and fought the communists and pushed them back. And that's how they created their first electorates, right? electoral successes. So this kind of serious electoral consideration and a caste uh, logic is something that's also in place. The third trajectory that I want to talk about is, again, in a, in a, split, in a, in a split parliament, in a hung parliament, wherein no particular party gets seats, uh, enough seats to form a, a government by itself, a 20, 15, 20, 30 seat swing is always very important. And in that context, Modi has been thought through also as a polarization candidate. That is, are there out 20 seats, 30 Lok Sabha seats outside Gujarat, which are subject or can be victims of polarization. That is, if you can polarize the electorate in these places, then you have the shift happening. And which is what, for instance, the experiment in something like Muzaffarnagar, etc., is all about. So these are three trajectories that I argue are coming together, and Modi becomes kind of the candidate that comes into place. But what this also does is overpower the 10, 12-year-old human rights, civil rights discourse that was the one that was seriously threatening Modi. When the business elite make the decision that they are going to go with him, they have to also cover up this other logic. And what is interesting there is that in spite of all of those efforts to cover it up, it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. You know, it's like, it's almost like the fact that a particular discourse around Modi has been established in the last 12 years makes it almost impossible even for the most Modi-friendly journalist if he, if he wants to retain or if she wants to retain even a mild credibility around it has at some point got to try and at least hand wave towards this issue of human rights. And every time that happens, this man does often enough slip and say something like, well, what, happen, what, what can happen if I run over a puppy, right? I mean, that kind of discourse. But what I'm trying to point to there is that I think this kind of a business, uh, a business and kind of the, a right-wing ideological attack, which attempts to kind of suppress any kind of a surfacing of a human rights discourse and, 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 and a discourse of accountability must make us think about questions of where we are hitting the limit on questions of democracy and, and liberalism, right? What I mean by that is that the question of minorities is a central question. And I think... What Gujarat in the last 12 years points to, and I think every single person on this panel has spoken to it, what Gujarat and what the last 12 years points to is the fact that at least, let's say, starting with India, 
that liberal democratic framework and the kind of rule that we've, we've seen there un, in, the, in the name of democracy has not been able to address the question of how do you protect minorities against a violent majoritarian right-wing movement. This question, fortunately for us actually, is not only limited to India. It has arisen in other parts of the world, including in UK, including in the United States, and several quote-unquote so-called developed countries, as well as in a lot of the third world. And so I think part of what we as an international community are contending with is the question of has liberal democracy hit its limit? Do we need to rethink the idea of liberal democracy itself and find new sets of ways of protecting minorities, whether it is in India, whether it is in Pakistan, whether it is in Burma, whether it's in Malaysia, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in the UK? Right? The growing discourse of Islamophobia, for instance, right, does produce the exact same question in a country like the United Kingdom or the United States. The kind of struggles that have happened in Egypt post the Arab Spring pose the exact same question of what do you, how, does, how do we, as we approach liberal democracy, how do we think about questions of minorities, right? And I think the very same thing is true with India. I think what we are seeing right now is an absolute struggle with so, between social movements and this kind of a majoritarian understanding of liberal democracy. And that struggle I don't think will end with this election, whether or not Modi is elected. Thank you. Okay, and thank you to all uh, of our presenters today. It's been an excellent series of presentations dealing with lots of different dimensions. I was hoping we would have about 20 minutes for questions and answers, and it we look like we have four minutes. Um, but what I can promise you is that you can continue the discussion in the reception which is happening straight outside here with the panelists so we can continue the discussion afterwards. I would still like to take some contributions so um, can we um, have just three questions, I think that's all we'll have time for um, and can I also say that you know, we all know that there are people who absolutely think uh, Narendra Modi is an amazing, wonderful man and there are other people who think he's an incredibly despicable man and so we know that already. Uh, so if we can move on from there uh, and just think about things that could take the debate forward. And please, uh, if you raise your hands and wait for the person, our wonderful stewards, to come with a microphone before you speak. I think this person was first. Hi. Um, my question is uh, to Ms. Shakuntala. Um, you know, you spoke about how the media has no accountability. Uh, the media Can I ask you no, to speak up, please? Um, you know how the media has no uh, accountability. It has lost all accountability. But um, who's, who's going to hold the media accountable? Because, you know, I'm on Twitter and I've been following uh, the news since the last few years. And, you know, there are, in India there are a few channels and a few um, news uh, organizations that support the Congress and there are a few that support the BJP and so on. So if you like Modi, you watch and read, you know, a bunch of people. And if you, if you like, you know, if you're a Congress supporter, you... You know, you follow, you know, another media house. And if, you, you know, and these opposing media houses just keep saying, oh, you said this about Modi because you hate, you hate him. And then, you know, the, if you say something about Rahul Gandhi, they say, yeah, you just said that because you hate him. But who's holding them accountable? And the same conversations uh, continue on social media. So on Twitter, uh, the Modi supporters, you know, they, they just carry forward the same conversation. And 
Uh, I feel like um, you know, I don't know how uh, you'd hold these people accountable. Okay, thank you very much for that question. If you could pass the microphone on to the person to... Um, Thank yeah, you. there was an article in the Indian Express a while back by a PhD candidate in Princeton, Vinay Siddhapati. He basically talked about how the focus on Modi as the central actor in 2002, uh, and then subsequently his uh, the clean shit that was given to him by the Supreme Court, has basically uh, absolved a lot of the people who were physically responsible for, for the violence as well. And that has taken away the focus on uh, procedural justice actually being carried out uh, for a lot of the grassroots cadre of the BJP and the Sangh Parivar uh, in Gujarat. And I think partly yeah. he, what he talked about was that the Congress and sort of the human rights organization chose to focus on Modi, and with the result, they thought that if he were to be convicted, it would cause a big blow to the BJP. But in reality, they've, I think prosecution rates were something like 5% for uh, investigation. I'm going to have to rush you because we're running out of time. So, so, so do you think uh, this focus on Modi is, is still, uh, I mean, legitimate, given what's happened in the aftermath? Okay, and sir, you had... Uh, Thank you. Um, my question is to Dr. Banerjee. Um, uh, Dr. Banerjee spoke about how if someone someone gets raped and um, on the on a road and and there happens to be a journalist close by, then the name will be broadcast uh, nationally on Indian television. But I'd like to point out that in the case of a very famous uh, uh, journalist who's now been charged with rape, uh, Mr. Tarun Tejpal of of of, of the Helka. The, the journalist's name, uh, the, 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 the woman who was allegedly raped, her name has not come out and the courts have actually passed an injunction against any media house bringing out the name. And, and the lawyer who was defending Mr. Dejpal was, uh, was charged with contempt for court for mentioning the name. So there, are, there is a judicially, uh, active judiciary on, of, to, to protect people. And what do you have to say about that? And then there's the Press Council of India which is working under a very, very eminent jurist, Justice Markande Kachu, who's been doing this. So what would you have to say about that? I mean, what, how do you, how do you okay. think that that's a good sign for India? Okay, I just want to in, in the, try and squeeze in just two more questions quickly. So I think you were next at the front. Uh, my name is Sudhir Zunanka. Can, can I perhaps ask the panel to comment briefly? I mean, we've been through this before, of course, when you had India shining. To what extent do you think the sort of diversity of India and its you know, inefficiencies and differences will actually <laughs> offset some of this? Because we had this big, big campaign in last time and Congress won, especially in the south and center of the country. Okay, thank you for being so brief. And um, the person who's just in the middle there with this hand up, that'll be, unfortunately, that'll have to be the last question. But as I said, you can continue the discussions outside. Thank, Thank you. you. I, I went to a recent lecture called The Crisis of Democracy in India, where the BJP was not even mentioned. So uh, I wanted to ask you about the role of the Supreme Court, which during the BJP, um, during the NDA, uh, continually postponed coming to judgments. Can you speculate on what the role of the Supreme Court will be if there is a uh, BJP government in future? Because... Uh, the same, the same sequence seems to be happening whereby politicians are trying to make the Supreme Court take decisions which basically are political decisions. Okay, thank you very much. That's a very, very interesting uh, set of questions. Can I ask our panel members to try and answer all of them in 30 seconds? 
<laughs> so um, the, the last question was on the Supreme Court, so maybe um, uh, Suresh or Carla might want to address that. I'm not sure whether that question is meant for me because we attended a lecture together by the ex-Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who argued regardless of what the color of the government is or the political um, status of or leanings of the government, the Supreme Court uh, has created an autonomy which holds some politicians to account um, over a period of 25 years. Um, I, I don't want to speculate the color or the judgments of the Supreme Court uh, if there's a new government elected in alliance or, or, or otherwise. But I, I think um, uh, Bijo has alluded to the fact that there's a very weakening political democracy that's, that exists uh, in, in India. And the role of the Supreme Court uh, has to be seen in, li- in, in that light. Um, I, I don't know what the permutations are going to be in three months' time. I'm just going to say that. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. And, and there was a question. Maybe we can combine this around um, India shining, vibrant Gujarat, Gujarat pride, all of those type of questions. Um, may- maybe I'll just make uh, one brief comment in, in relation to uh, what level uh, should one go to in terms of prosecutions and investigations? And here, I think it's really important that we don't look at this politically. We look at it legally. We look at it in, with, in, a, in view of the evidence. Let the evidence take us where, where it may. And if there's evidence of command responsibility which goes all the way up the chain, it's important that the legal structures are capable of dealing with that through the court system. But that, that shouldn't uh, exclude lower, level, lower levels of accountability. Can I, address, can I address the two questions? Absolutely relevant, really good and pertinent questions about regulation and how you would go about regulation. First of all, absolutely to say there is much good legislation, there is much good decision-making within the judiciary in India, and this can be strengthened. We need to strengthen it in many ways. The media can strengthen it too. The question of the press, um, the press trust of India, led by an eminent jurist, absolutely right, but it has no rights over the electronic media. It has no rights over Twitter. It has no rights over the electronic media. And if it were to be pushed so that it did, what would the sanctions be? I mean, if someone flouted the press trust of India, if someone flouted it, what could you do to them? You cannot, it has no power to put people in jail. It has no power for even the most severe cases. Take the Nira Radia tapes issue. I mean, who was punished? Which journalists were punished and in what way? And I totally agree with you. There is one system for those who have wealth. You can keep your name out of the media. Believe me, people keep their name out of the media all the time. But if you happen to be on the street and get you know, clicked doing something. And I, I talk from experience. I just in, examined a PhD about the reporting on child murders in India. The shocking disrespect for the children, for the parents, for everybody concerned. The shocking way in which facts and pictures are spread. So what you need, what you need to address your, your question, is an elected body, a strong body which has a people's mandate, which includes citizens, you know, which cannot be appointed by any political party, which cannot be appointed by the media themselves, which must include people who understand and know the media, but also understand and know the public context. So this is an ongoing struggle in England, in every country, to have a really good, strong regulation of the media and of new media. Okay, thank you, Shaka. And Biju? 
Uh, I think the question about whether there was too much focus on Modi and thereby the whole process went uh, wrong, uh, I think you're referring to, if I remember right, the name of the person who wrote it is Senapati, something Senapati, yeah. I, complete, I, I just finished reading the article and I completely disagree with that because I think the facts in terms of the, uh, in terms of, I mean, there's very little conversation that paper has had with people who attempted to prosecute on the ground in Gujarat. I mean, I was in Gujarat post the carnage for about six months on and off and worked with several small groupings that collected the evidence, tried to move FIRs, tried to get cases registered. You know, the enormous efforts were made by groups, individuals with a certain degree of power coming in from outside, but also a lot of small groups, uh, including various small Muslim community organizations across Gujarat. And the failure or the blocks they faced were so huge that after a while, several of them just gave up. Right? And it's in that context that the prosecution of Modi became more important. I think if we just look at the track record of how many people tried to get an FIR registered in the first two years after the carnage in Gujarat, then you would, and, and if there's some way of gathering that data, I'm speaking from an anecdotal experience of just being there on and off consistently for six to eight months, right? But if I, and I'm very certain that somebody like Sinabati just did not engage with that, uh, that, that end of it. If you're just done, let's say, just done, just on the ground um, um, interviews with many Muslims of how, how often they tried to get that done, I think the answer would have been very different. So that's one. The second, this whole vibrant Gujarat and that end of the picture, I think, yeah, I mean, the exact same thing might very well happen this time because it's, again, this whole India shining, vibrant Gujarat, that structure is still in place. But I also think part of the discourse has shifted because the last four or five years has also brought into place certain discourses around corruption and all of that also into place, which the larger set of public is interested in, not just the urban middle class, but also the semi-urban rural uh, folks are, you know, just sick off the so-called, you know, the, the elite classes and what they do. In that context, I think the AAP party might well play the big spoiler in, in the sense that they have, I mean, if you just look at the success with which they have often been able to turn the debate, and I think the more, most recent thing that they have done wherein they have come out attacking Modi on his connections to Adani and Reliance, I think is exactly meant to do that, right? So I think some of the discourse has shifted, and therefore, in spite of all the hype, you might see a tailing off of some of this Modi popularity. Okay, thank you, Biju. Um, and we will see where we are in May. <laughs> but before my formal thanks, I just want to quickly tell you about two events that you would be very interested in, I'm sure. Uh, on the 3rd of March, the Gender Institute at the LSE are hosting an important panel discussion on gender and the Hindu right in India. And this is on Monday, 3rd of March uh, at 6.30 in this theatre. And the speakers include uh, Nishan Jaffrey Hussain, the daughter of the MP uh, Eshan Jaffrey, who was so horrifically uh, murdered during the Gujarat carnage. And uh, other speakers include the anthropologist and human rights specialist Angana Chatterjee and the writer uh, Meena Kandasamy. And the Gender Institute website will have more details. And on the 3rd of April... We, which is the Center for the Study of Human Rights, are holding an important lecture by Professor Pato Chatterjee 
on nationalism, internationalism, and cosmopolitanism, some lessons from modern Indian history. And the lecture is also the inaugural event for the nationalism, internationalism, cosmopolitanism, and the politics of solidarity, I made it to the end, research group, which is based in our our centre. And if you want to know more about the centre's numerous events, numerous public events, please uh, sign up to receive our email alerts uh, or follow us on Twitter at LSE Human Rights. Can I thank Biju Matthew, Carla Firstman, Suresh Grover, and Shaku Banerjee again for coming to speak to us and giving us an excellent evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.